This week, in my study, I ran across a news article. Well, I don't say it's a news article. It's like a blog or something. And it's by a guy who is writing to pastors about why people leave churches, why they break fellowship with the local church and decide to go elsewhere. And he gives 12 reasons. Let's read them quickly to you. Number one, a relationship conflict. So somebody got mad at somebody else. Number two, weak preaching. Number three, authoritarian leadership. Number four, poor children's or students programming. Number five, neglected pastor care. And now what he's talking here is not like a consistent neglected, but he says right or wrong, some church members give their pastors one shot, and if he messes it, then they're going elsewhere. Six, personal sin. He says it's easier to leave a church than to sit under preaching that convicts of your sin week after week. It's easier to leave than repent. Number seven, burnout. The members are just being worn out too much by serving in a local church. Nine, no connectedness, whether that's an unfriendly church or because they don't get involved. If they're not connected, they'll leave. Number nine, congregational strife. Again, issues. Ten, theological disagreement. Eleven, disagreement over politics. Twelve, irrelevance of the sermon. Now, what's interesting about this list is that he doesn't intend this list to be a a rebuke of the way the church operates, but in things that pastors should try and fix. He, he means this in like, hey, pastor, you got to make sure you're doing it perfect, or if you mess it once, they're going to leave. Uh, you got to make sure that everybody's happy and nobody has any, any conflicts. You got to make sure that, I mean, at least people were taking as, don't call out sin too much because people don't want to hear that. With the exception of maybe theology and the authoritarian leadership, if you have a dictator, pastor, or something like that, what we find is most of these issues are covered in the New Testament. But they're not covered the way that that guy meant it. We live in a culture, friends, that would rather leave than make relationships work. Whether that's our friendships, whether that is marriages, whether that is jobs or the local church. We live in a culture that would rather pull the ejection handle than to do the hard things and work on relationships. But is that how we should think as the bride of Christ? Maybe you're here today and you're one of the ones that's fed up with these people. You're just fed up with the guy you sit in the pew with every week. We have at least two churches, three churches represented here this morning. So maybe whatever church you are in, you're just fed up. And you're thinking about pulling that ejection handle. You're tired of these people. But is that how we should think? John says this, that if you say you love God, whom you have not seen, yet hate your brother, you lie, and the truth is not in you. 1 John 4.20 Friends, if all we can do when we walk into a church building is to gripe about this or that, if we fail to see the growth in our brothers and sisters, if all we see is our brothers and sisters' failures yet never deal with our own issues, if we can nitpick every point of non-essential theology and find a reason not to commit, if we 
I kid you not, I've seen this, have a decimal meter on our phone, decibel meter, and at the end of service, go up to the worship pastor, the, the music pastor, and show him how loud the service was every week, in and out. If that's your heart, the New Testament says you may not actually be following Christ. That's why we need to pay attention to Paul's words today. We need to think about how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to think about how we treat each other. Because just last week, in in last week's text, Paul says that we are to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the unmerited grace that we have received. So picking back up where we left off in Philippians, if you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Philippians 2, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we will pick back up where we left off last week. Paul writes to the church under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if then... There is any encouragement in Christ. If any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we praise you that we have your instruction in sentence form, that we might know you, that we might know the gospel, that we might know how we are to live in light of it. God, I pray you would protect these people's ears and guard my mouth. And if anything would come out of my mouth that is unprofitable or unhelpful for your people, that it would fall away, that only your truth from your word would remain in their hearts. And we love you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you must place others above yourself. Put others first by seeking to be unified. Put others first by seeking to be humble. And put others first by seeking to be helpful. Now, as we talked with the kids this morning, we're back in Philippians. We're in Philippians still. And Paul wrote this letter from jail. So he's sitting in a jail cell. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed or if he's going to be released. We saw that last week. He he says either way, I mean, to be with Christ is better, but to remain is good for you, to help you grow in your faith. And despite the fact he's sitting in jail and his future is uncertain, humanly speaking, joy saturates this letter. His love for the church saturates this letter. And he writes to them to promote gospel-centered unity that the gospel may advance. Again, that's not gospel. I mean, that's not unity at all costs. That's not unity at the sake of good theology. That's gospel-centered unity that the gospel may advance. And so far, we've read that Paul gives thanks for this congregation in every prayer, that the good work he began in believers will continue on to completion, that Paul's imprisonment may look like a bad thing to some people, 
but it has actually served in God's providence to advance the gospel. And that whether Paul lives or dies, his desire is that much be made of Christ and that Christians would live lives worthy of the gospel. A life worthy of the gospel, a life that desires much to be made of Christ. And then Paul begins this section of Scripture with a series of conditional clauses to make a heartfelt appeal to the Philippians. And so he uses the word if, but in the Greek it could also mean since, But whether it's meant to be if or since in the English word, it doesn't matter because Paul doesn't question whether the believers have received these things. He knows they have. Look at verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation in love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affliction, affection and mercy. Paul says, since you have encouragement in Christ. Friend, if you are a Christian, you should be encouraged in Christ because you are in union with Jesus Christ. Christ, the eternal Son, left His home in heaven, walked among us, walked a perfect life, took all of the Father's wrath for sin for believers. It was buried in a tomb, rose on the third day, and is now at the Father's right hand for you. Christ gave you His righteousness and took your sin on Himself. And Paul says, since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have the comfort of love, you have been restored to the Father through Christ because of His great love, because God loved the world in this way. The Bible tells us that the unbelievers, they are enemies of God. They are rebels against God, but not you, Christian. You have the love of God. You have the comfort of God's love. And since you have the fellowship of the Spirit. Friends, all true believers are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. He marks us off. Remember back to Ephesians last year. He marks us. He brands us as God's possession. When we have God's Spirit in us, the New Testament knows nothing of a believer without God's Spirit. The Spirit doesn't leave when we mess up. He doesn't come back if you do something good. But if you are in Christ, you are permanently indwelled by the Spirit, marked as God's possession. And we have that. And then he says, because you have affection and you have mercy. In Paul fashion, he's heaping up these things that we have, undeserved mercy. And he says, because you have these things, because you have encouragement in Christ, because you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, because you have love, because you have mercy, Make my joy complete by. And the first thing he says is put others first by seeking to be unified. Look at verse 2. Because you have these things, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Friends, our unity as Christians, our unity in the local church is necessary for the advancement of the gospel in Ketchikan. Our unity in the local church is necessary for believers to grow. No one will learn in a hectic, crazy environment where everyone is fighting all the time. The unity of the local church is necessary for believers to use their gifts. No one is going to flourish in eternal, internal chaos and division. And that's why the New Testament warns us so much about division. About the dangers of factions and cliques and favoritism. 
Paul says, you are all indwelled with the same Holy Spirit. There should be unity in the body. You all have the same Spirit. Sure, there are going to be tares sown in among the wheats, and immature and prideful Christians get positions they should not sometimes, and it causes trouble. But by and large, you have the same Spirit. You should be unified together as the body of Christ. And the New Testament warns us about what to do with divisive people. Titus 3.10 says, Reject a person after the first and second warning if they are divisive. We are called to call out divisive people, to confront them, to safeguard the unity of this local church. But you say, well, wasn't Martin Luther divisive when he nailed his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg? It seems pretty divisive to me. But we have to go back and remember that Martin Luther wasn't seeking to start his own denomination. They didn't know of such things back then. He wasn't trying to hurt the church. He wanted the church to return back to what the Scriptures taught. When people divide the church, the Bible talks about those who teach doctrine that is against Scriptures being the divisive ones, not the ones who hold to what the Bible says. And as Christians, as a church, we must strive for oneness of spirit, harmony in the church. We must do what Al Mohler calls theological triage, right? So we have layers of doctrine. There are some doctrines, friends, that we hold closed fist. We hold orthodoxy, the, the person and work of Christ, the Trinity, the authority of the Scriptures, the justification by faith alone. We do not budge on those. There are second-tier issues where maybe we can't be in the same church, but we're not going to call you outside the faith. And then there are tertiary issues, which we can just disagree on. And that's what I'm talking about when I say unity. Like if you are an all-mill or a post-mill or a pre-mill or a whatever mill, we can still get along, we can still fellowship, and we can have those conversations, and we can open our Bibles over a cup of coffee, and we can disagree but still love one another in this local church. And we must strive for oneness of spirit by forgiving our fellow Christians. Pastor, but don't you know what she said about my casserole at the last cookout? Well, yeah, get over it. As you've heard me say time and time again, my mentor used to say to the church, you know, sometimes you're going to have to make yourself love me, but sometimes I'm going to have to make myself love you. That's what we're called to do. Submit to uh, qualified leadership. Hebrews 13 says, make it a joy to pastor you. The continual, I don't like the music, I don't like this. No, one, no man can, can withstand that forever. I love what Pastor Ray Orland says. He is, has been circulating around for a couple years. He said this. He says, when I say pastors, I'm talking about elders. I'm talking about the guy that preaches. I'm talking about pastor elders. You, you know who they are. It says, if your pastor loves the Lord, if he is faithful to his wife, if he preaches Jesus from the Bible, don't hassle him. If he's imperfected in some ways, don't fix him. Who can flourish under that scrutiny? Instead, get down on your knees and thank God that he gave you a pastor. He gave you elders. 
He gave you men that are responsible for your soul and, and, and who spend the week in the Scriptures, and they are all flawed. I know if you ever attended our elder meeting, all of us are flawed. But we are called to strive for oneness in this local church. The local church must be unified if the gospel is to be advanced. And rather divide over preferences or to self-promote, we are all called to humility. So the second thing we see in this passage is to put others first by seeking to be humble. Look at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Friends, our unity cannot be reached if there is no humility. Our unity will not be reached if we are all prideful and want it our way. Humility is key. And when I say humility, friend, I'm talking about your humility, not the person across the room. Humility is key to our unity. Thielman writes that the attempt to gain the upper hand through underhanded techniques is present in the church. If everyone is consistently and constantly thinking about their own wants, their own desires, the gospel will not advance. If Paul was just thinking about himself and writing, guys, you know, write petitions, do all this stuff, I just got to get out of jail. The gospel does not advance. If we are thinking about ourselves all the time, the church will not mature. We will not raise up new leaders that go out and plant other churches. We will not raise up missionaries. We won't even support the missionaries that we pray for if we're just constantly thinking about me, myself, and I. It's what I want. Pride is the opposite of humility. Pride is focusing on self both positively and negatively. Pride is, man, I'm Alan McElroy and I'm so good, look at me. Pride is also, I'm Alan McElroy and I'm just a big scrub and nobody likes me. I'm just focusing on me. Tim Keller said a few years ago, pride is, gets you in that if you hear this sermon about pride and you're thinking about someone that needs to listen to it, it's just got you. So when we think about humility, friends, we're thinking about me. We're thinking about ourselves. Proverbs 13.10 says, and through pride comes nothing but strife. Most of the issues we've encountered in this church come from pride. They have pride at their root. Pride causes us to double down on our sin when we're called out. Pride causes us to ignore what the Bible teaches according to our worldly wisdom or experience. Pride causes us to argue over tertiary issues, wrecking our unity over whether or not there's going to be a secret rapture. But church, we are called to humility. What is humility? Well, John Piper says this, it's the opposite of a sense of entitlement. So pride causes us to walk through life thinking about what we're owed. Pride says, this is what the church should be doing for me. Pride is that list, right? Well, I can't go to this church anymore because they don't have a youth program that uses a curriculum I like. That's pride. And then you say, I'll take my business elsewhere. Burger King won't give it to me my way. I'll go to McDonald's. And that comes down to the church as well. 
Pride is, ah, the pastor needs to be doing this, or he shouldn't have picked Philippians, he should have picked Romans. Pride is, I deserve more rest, so I'm not going to serve the local church. Pride is, I deserve more time with friends, more game time, more date time. I deserve. But humility comes when you realize that you didn't get what you deserve. Because you and I deserve eternal damnation. You and I deserve what Christ took on our behalf. That's what we deserve. And and God calls us to Himself according to His grace, according to His mercy, and we do not deserve it. We get a new heart. Our heart of flesh is replaced, our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, and we do not deserve it. We get to be a part of this church, friends. I get to be a part of White Cliff Church, and I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve my wife. I don't deserve my kids. I don't deserve any of it because of a good and gracious God. Brother, sister, you do not want what you deserve. You want grace. And because you have received grace, in turn, you give grace humbly to others. That means when Mrs. Smith said your casserole was too salty, maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. Who cares? Love her. It's your sister in Christ. And Hendrickson says that when divine grace changes our heart, submission to God's word and humility are both born at some level in a Christian, and they grow as the Spirit has His perfect work in us. We are called to evaluate our hearts. Paul says that, and what does it say if we consistently fight and bicker? and put down our fellow Christian, and self-promote, and neglect our church members. Instead, we are called to outdo one another in showing honor, and humbly desire the good of others. So the third thing we see in this passage is put others first by seeking to be helpful. Look at verse 4. Everyone should not look to his own interest, but rather to the interests of others. When we truly realize who we are and that we didn't get what we deserve, when we didn't get what we rightly deserve but got God's grace, it follows that we are going to be thankful. And in our thankfulness, we are going to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and treat them highly. We will eagerly look to one another's needs. Think of Acts Remember the beginning of Acts? They're like selling their stuff off and they're all sharing and having in common. Christians, we are called to selflessness. Selflessness. You know, I try really, really hard not to put army illustrations in my sermons because I know it's just, I have them a lot, but I couldn't help it. You get two in a row. I'm sorry. One last week, one this week. When I was in the army, one of our core values is selfless service, right? A service that is selfless. We had this dog tag thing with all seven of the army values on it. We wore it around our neck. It was an inspectable item. The first sergeant came around and said, let me see your ID tags. You had to have it on there. I still carry it in my wallet to this day. Selfless service. And that's not just jumping on a hand grenade to save your buddies like you see in the movies, while certainly that is selfless. Selfless service is also, in the military sense, not making personal appointments during a training event so that you could be there training with the guys. 
Selfless service was not getting LASIK surgery right before a deployment to where you couldn't go overseas and man your position. Selfless service was not partying the night before a jump, putting others in the airplane at risk. The mission and the men came before our personal wants and desires. And then my wife and I became Christians and joined the local church. And I was shocked and surprised to see that God's people were often some of the more selfish people. Well, I love Jesus and I love this church until I don't get my way. Hashtag blessed. Unless the pastor needs me to do a basic job in the church. Jesus and his bride are my life, except. Now, I do want to say that some of you have the other end of the spectrum problem. I know some of you, every time we call for help, you're going to show up and I just want to be like, hey, just you can go sit down. Like you do everything. Uh, you know, if you follow this military service, it's like, didn't you just go up Mount Sarabachi in Iwo Jima? Well, yeah, Pastor. Didn't you just storm D-Day, uh, Normandy Beach? Yeah, Pastor. I'm ready to go. And some of y'all, you just need to go read your Bible for a little bit and remember that the Lord loves you. But some of you, brothers, sisters, we are called to selflessness. Wanting it my way, wanting continual service, wanting everyone to cater to me. Friends, that is not a fruit of the Spirit. It is a sign of the fall. Selfish people manipulate others. They manipulate a situation. They hide behind good things like family and other service, like work. They manipulate the facts all to get what they want rather than look on the needs of others. Selfishness, quarrelsome, pettiness. This is the bane of the local church. And maybe you think, well, you're way off. Maybe you think it's crazy to think that you need to put others first and your desires second. Maybe you think that the local church does this, exists to meet your need, like that first list, like, hey, you got to check all my boxes, church, or I'm, I'm going to take my business down the street. Well, Paul cites an ancient hymn as an example of Christ's selflessness and how we should live. Look with me at your Bible, starting in chapter 5. I'll start, actually, I'll start in 4. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself, by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him <coughs> and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow <clears throat> in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Now, we are going to dive deeply into this passage next week. There's a lot of theology we want to unpack. But for now, it suffices to say that Christ is our example of selflessness. The, 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 God the Son, eternally existent, left His throne in heaven, humbled Himself, came not to serve, to be served, but to serve. Friends, if that's what He did, we have no excuse. Do not become so preoccupied with your desires, your wants, your schedule, all the things that you cannot serve others, but rather accept a way of life that benefits those who live under the rule of the exalted Christ, as Martin says. And as we think about this passage, as we think about humility and service and unity, I want to give you seven ways, seven ways that you can put your fellow Christian first. First, reorient your outlook from an American individualistic self-outlook to a corporate outlook. In other words, it's the opposite of, well, I want to make much of Jesus and I love my church. It's hashtag blessed, but I don't like the music. Friends, it is a wonderful thing if you've ever been a part of a church in which every church member considers the other more highly than themselves. Not perfectly, but that is their goal. You say, that's fantasy, it doesn't exist. Promise you, I promise you that there are churches where that is the goal of members. Where a culture of love and service exists. Where you don't have to beg people to work in nursery. And it's generally the churches where the Bible has been exposited verse by verse for decades. Friends, we need to think less individual, more corporate. In other words, this church is not a gym in which you get a personal trainer who will tailor a workout for your needs, but this is more of group PT, where we're only as fast as our slowest man or woman. We want to see the entire group grow and be strengthened. Think corporate, less individual. Second, don't take yourself so seriously. Don't take yourself so seriously. Don't worry too much when you walk in these doors about how everyone views you. Let me go ahead and break it down for you. You're not that big a deal. I'm not that big a deal. None of us that big a deal. We're in a church with 47 members on an island in southeast Alaska in a community that is largely secular Friends, none of us are that big a deal. And those of us who read the Scripture already know that you are broken and that you are fallen and that you need Jesus, just like we need Jesus. Every single one of you is either a current rebel against a holy God or you have been saved by His grace and His grace alone. Past that, who cares what you drive or if you had time to straighten your hair this morning? Don't take yourself so seriously. Because if you're indwelled with God's Spirit, I want to be with you, and I want you to be with me. All your imperfections and weird, quirky personalities and my weird, quirky personality. We're going to spend eternity together if we're in Christ, so let's start getting used to one another right now, and let's start making each other a priority right now. 
and let the world have the vain glory. Third, if you insist that something is to be done a certain way, make sure that that certain way is found in God's Word and not your preferences. If you don't want to sing these songs because they're not theologically rich, let's talk. We'll grab Alan McDonald. Let's go have coffee. Let's find out what's going on with that song. If you do not want to sing these songs because they're not your style preference and they're not what they play on K-Love, check your heart. Check your heart. Because this church is not your jukebox. Save your quarter. I don't know if they still cost a quarter. Use a jukebox or not, or if you just swipe a debit card, but you know what I'm saying. Friends, there are times when the church must take a firm stance on something, but let's make sure that stance is rooted in God's Word. Fourth, look for ways to serve even in menial ways. You say, well, I'm gifted to teach, and I know a bunch of theology, but I'm not gifted in weed-eating. When I was an intern under... Dr. Chipman at Masters, every single intern was put on the weeding list in Kansas City, which means about once a month, every six weeks, we had to drive down to the church in the hot Kansas sun and pull weeds. The idea was if you're too big a guy to pull weeds, then you're not going to be teaching these people. One of our friends, Daniel Pentamone, some of y'all may remember he taught a class here a couple years ago. He did a three-year internship where in the first year, all he did was clean the bathrooms. Same idea. If you're not willing to clean up after God's people, you're not ready to teach them. One of the quickest ways to make sure that you will not lead a ministry in this church is to be too important for the small stuff. If you're too important to mow grass, man, you are just, you're too important to be teaching this little church. And the old cop-out of, well, that's, Pastor, that's just not my gifting. I'm just not gifted to mow grass. I'm more gifted to like spend the church's money, but not to mow grass. Fifth, let your actions speak for your inner desire, not just your words. Sarah and I were talking this week. One of the hardest things we had to deal with in the first year of ministry was the people who screamed that they were loving the most and that all we need is love sometimes did the cruelest things. If you truly have a heart to serve God's church, and if you are truly just want to love everybody, just do it. Just do it. You don't have to announce it. When we say we need volunteers for nurses, just show up. Just come on. You don't have to tell everybody how loving you are. Just jump in. Show the church you're committed. But with that, number six, make sure your service to the church is for the advancement of Christ's name and not your name. Many people who would rightly critique a pastor for preaching for his personal gain, right? So a guy that gets up here and just makes much of himself and wants the attention, the people that would rightly critique him are the people that get mad about the casseroles and not getting attention they deserve. Friend, whether it's a sermon or it's a casserole, make sure that what you're doing is for God's glory, not your own. When was the last time you shoveled snow on a Saturday night and knew that no one was going to see what you did. Do you only want jobs where the ch- in the church where you receive acknowledgement? If so, check your heart. Why are you serving? Your glory or Christ's? Paul was willing to stay in prison for Christ's glory. What about us? 
Humility. Remember, humility and unity will follow. Seven, final. Remember what Christ has done for you. A Christian cannot be prideful. A Christian cannot boast in the shadow of the cross. You cannot stand at the foot of Calvary and talk about how great you are. If you can look at Christ in His humility, God the Son, eternally existent, nailed to a cross for sin and brag on yourself. If you can stand and look at what Christ did and say, I'm going to have it my way. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to be heard, friend. I don't, I do not know if you truly understand the gospel. Because the person who understands the gospel and and, and understands that they were saved, not according to their works, but according to God who gives mercy. Let's not boast like that. Now, maybe and hopefully you're just an immature Christian and the Spirit will continue to have His work in you, which we see in this book. He will. But perhaps it's because you are no Christian at all. Friends, the eternal God, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, stooped to become man. And you and I were born dead in sin. This holy God-man was rejected by the world, but he was perfect in every way. You and I have never been perfect one second of any single day we have ever lived. He was without sin, yet he became sin for you and me. So this morning, as you examine your heart and you check to see what your intentions are and, and, and what you desire, do you find yourself falling short? And have you truly turned to Him who is our example of true humility and selflessness? Friend, have you turned from your rebellion? Have you turned from pleasing yourself? Have you turned from wanting it all your way, rebelling against a holy God, and turned to Christ, cast yourself at His feet, confess that you are a sinner? Have you believed the gospel? Have you repented and turned? If not, you must do it today. Repent and believe the gospel. Cast yourself at the feet of a holy and merciful Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about what that looks like, if you feel him drawing you, please grab any one of the elders. There are multiple pastors in the room this day because we want to talk to you. As Christians, we show that we have gratitude for what Christ has done for us by seeking unity, by seeking humility and and, and turning from pridefulness, and by seeking to help our brothers and sisters by outdoing them with honor, by, by, by loving them and seeking to serve them. As a follower of Christ, we have to, we must place others above ourselves. As it's been said, it's not I am second, it's I am third. God first, others, and then me. I am third. So this morning I ask, why are you here this morning? Why are you here? Is it because you are a blood-bought Christian seeking to gather with His people to use your gifts to be ministered to, to minister to others, and to glorify God's name? Or is it something else? Are you committed to a local body? Do you desire unity? Are you turning from pride? Because Christians, we are called to live worthy of the gospel. 
and desire that much would be made of Christ, not ourselves. Lord, we, we humbly ask that you would have your work in Whitecliff Church. We desire to be a faithful and a fruitful church. God, we ask that you would grant us gospel-centered unity. God, we ask that you would rip out pride by its roots. Start with me. Whatever pride I have in my life, whatever sin that needs to be confessed, God, expose it that I may repent of it and then work through all of the church. May we outdo one another in showing honor, all for your honor and your glory alone. We pray this in our Savior, Jesus' name. Amen.